Hi there, and welcome to Live from the Cyber Institute. In this podcast, we listen in on conversations taking place among ministers, church leaders, and scholars as we engage the issues facing Christians and church leaders today. We hope that this episode is thought-provoking and a blessing to you, because as with everything we do in the Cyber Institute, our mission is to equip church leaders and help churches thrive. After you listen, make sure to follow our podcast so that you get all the latest episodes from your podcast platform of choice. Let's get started. Welcome everyone to Live from the Cyber Institute, the podcast out of ACU's Cyber Institute for Church Ministry. My name is Jennifer Schroeder, and I am the director of Summit for the Cyber Institute, as well as an instructor of children and family ministry in the Department of Bible, Missions, and Ministry here at ACU. I am really excited to sit down with Dr. Holly Catterton Allen, noted scholar and author, as we engage in a conversation on intergenerationality. Holly retired in 2022 from her position as Professor of Christian Ministries and Family Science at Lipscomb University in Nashville, Tennessee. In retirement, her areas of interest continue to be children's spiritual formation and intergenerational ministry. From 2015 to 2021, she chaired two biennial international cross-denominational conferences, Intergenerate and the Children's Spirituality Summit. Holly, I am so glad you're here today. Before we get started, tell us a little bit more about yourself and your latest book. Thank you, Jennifer. I think I should start by saying how I became interested in all things intergenerational. Uh, Our most recent book is Intergenerational Christian Formation, uh, Bringing the Whole Church Together in Ministry, Community, and Worship. This is the second edition. Uh, The first edition came out 11 years ago, so it's mostly about bringing the generations together. I was part of Churches of Christ, you know, all my life and was very interested in children very early on. I had my first little class when I was 11. They let me teach in VBS. Can't believe they did that, but I loved it. Uh, I majored in education at Harding University. And I taught children in Sunday school. I began the children's church at Mentor Lane in Abilene in the 80s. I loved working with children, teaching them, drawing them to Jesus. But in the 1990-something changed in my life. Um, We were part of an intergenerational church, a church that met primarily in intergenerational small groups on Sunday evenings, and then we gathered together on Sunday mornings to worship together. But on Sunday evenings, we had the children, the teens, the emerging adults, young adults, middle adults, and older adults all together. And we prayed together. We sang together. We answered an icebreaker at the beginning, uh, just saying, you know, what did you would answer a question like, what is your favorite ice cream? And we'd say, my name is Holly and my favorite ice cream is chocolate peanut butter or whatever it was. But every week we got to know each other. The children knew everyone's names. Everyone knew their names. We began to see each other. The children seeing the older people as real people, not just mwah, 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 you know, the Charlie Brown version of adulthood. And the adults began to see children and teens as fully spiritual beings, with relationships with God, whose questions were as important as ours, fully growing into who they were becoming as we were. It was a wonderful opportunity to see what I hadn't seen before. The children began praying with and for their parents and other adults. They began to minister to their parents and other adults and to each other. I had not seen that in my 
Sunday school classes. I had not seen that in my children's ministry in any way. Now, they would sometimes pray for each other, but I hadn't seen them cross the generational gap. I began, I believe God put a question in me that just basically said, what is it? What is it about these intergenerational small groups that is growing us up? How are we growing each other up? What's happening here? And that was a question that I think God placed in me and I began to pursue. I was not finding much on it. This was in the 1990s height of the seeker sensitive, height of silo ministries. So I decided to pursue that as a doctoral question. And that was my dissertation. Uh, I was sad and surprised to find that no one else was really asking that question. There was very little literature on it at that time. I found one big dissertation really focusing on that. I found a couple others that were smaller, like within a congregation, D-men type projects. Um, but it was an open question. And it took me a while to find the why. I found some how. I found some biblical and some theological support, but I, I just couldn't find the why. Why is it? I believed that God wanted us to be in all the generations, you know, worshiping together and caring for one another. And I thought it was biblical. I thought it was theologically sound. But even for the things that God um, indicates we should be doing, we should be living in this way. There are other reasons behind that. He knows us. He made us. So it makes sense and he knows it, but sometimes we find other reasons that back up what he already knew about us in the scientific world. You know, we, we found out about germs far later than God knew, but he, he knew that there were reasons to put people outside the camp who had infectious diseases. We didn't know that. Uh, now we know because of science. So I was looking for the theoretical support. So that was that was the, the purpose of that dissertation. And since then, God has just continued to place uh, this question on my heart uh, over and over. And he's drawn a lot of other people into the story uh, in the mid-2000s, the aughts, as they're calling them. Uh, someone approached me, Christine Lawton, and she said, I've written my dissertation on intergenerational things and you did. Why don't we write a book? And I said, we can write a book. No one is interested. No one will buy it. No publisher will print it because I perceived at that point that there was very little interest. That was maybe in 2006. In 2008, she said, we really should do this. And I said, well, let's think about it. So we did. And in 2010, we started working on it. In 2000, late 2010, InterVarsity said they wanted to publish it. And I was just like, do you know something we don't know? Uh, but it came out in 2012 and many people were interested. And each year since then, the sales have just gone up. So it's a growing area of interest. I believe that's God's work as well. He's just simply calling people to get together in the generations. So uh, recently in 2020, we approached InterVarsity and said, we think there's a lot more research going on right now. More people are interested. Um, in fact, there's kind of a tsunami of interest around the world. What about a second edition? And they were completely on board. They just said, absolutely, let's go for 10 years. That would have been 2022, but it, we didn't quite make it. So uh, it's just come out June the 13th. And so we're really delighted. Has quite a few new chapters and some new insights and just updates. So it's, it's just delightful. Well, thank you. I am, I'm really excited. We're going to spend a few minutes talking about the book um, in a moment, but I want to start first because you give us a really good description of kind of your pathway through intergenerationality. It's a big word. It's a long word. It's sometimes, or not sometimes, it's definitely um, a misunderstood word in many instances. Mm -hmm. So if I were to ask you, what is intergenerationality or intergenerational Christian formation or intergenerational ministry, what would be a good basic definition that you would provide for us on that? 
Uh, we still use in our second edition the same definition that we used in our first one. And this is really from Christine's def, um, dissertation. We believe that intergenerational Christian formation, which is what we call this, happens when a congregation intentionally brings the generations together in mutual serving, sharing, or learning within the core practices of the church in order to live out being the body of Christ to each other and to the greater community. So it includes really keywords, that intentional piece. I think back to my childhood, we didn't have youth group. We didn't have children's ministry. We were pretty much together most of the time. We had Sunday school. We had about 150 in our church. I knew everybody. Uh, I knew the oldest people and they knew me. Oh, we were there you know, my entire childhood. So that's understandable. Uh, but I got to see when the teenagers were having difficulty, I got to see what it looked like to be a young married person. I got to look, see what it looked like to get cancer when you're 40. I was in the, I was 10 when one of the boys in the youth group, his, group, his mom got cancer. And, um, you know, I knew her. I would have not normally known her in a lot of churches, but, you know, I knew everybody. And her sister came from California to care for her. And she didn't make it. Her sister was with us six months. I got to know her sister. Uh, when uh, Jeanette lost her hair, her sister didn't shave her head, but she started wearing hats with her sister and wrapping her head in scarves. So the, both the sisters would come to church. And then eventually Jeanette couldn't come and the sister did. And um, that impacted my life. And when my sister 20 years ago was diagnosed with cancer, I was living in California. She was living in Florida. And I thought, I'm going to go and spend time with her. And I did. And I did it because I loved her, but also because I had already in my mind I knew I had that construct that says when your sister has cancer, you go and you stay with her. It was something I absorbed. I didn't take notes and say, you know, at 10, there's a woman in my church who has cancer and her sister came to see her. So if this ever happens to me, I'm going to do that. I didn't do that. It's just that it was part of me because I was part of an intergenerational body. We weren't necessarily intentional about it, but I did absorb it. A lot of people think intergenerational ministry or intergenerationality just means bringing the children back. Because for 25 years or more, we've been sending the children away. And so they basically think it means that we have to have kids in church. And that's really uh, kind of scary for some parents. We've raised at least two generations of parents who didn't go with their parents and worship with their parents if they were in larger churches where there was a children's church. So they think primarily it just means bringing the children back. And they're a little bit afraid because they don't even, they don't know, they can't imagine what that might look like or be like. Uh, also, the, the people who've stayed in our churches are people for whom youth group and children's ministry or children's church, they loved it. They loved it. It's what kept them in there. They're still faithful. They love the Lord. And they think it worked for me. Let's just do that. And of course, they're the 20% who stayed. What about the other 80% who, for whom youth ministry didn't hold them tight or their parents didn't hold them tight? Children who never were with their parents for any spiritual activity whatsoever. We sort of went that extreme. Um, so I, I think when I say intergenerational, I'm meaning bringing the generations together for your ordinary activities, your core activities, not all of them, uh, but intentionally and regularly uh, for worship, I would say regularly, and for 
perhaps occasional intergenerational learning experiences. Certainly our wonderful potluck type things that we've always had, those are great. How can you make them more intentionally intergenerational? Well, try to see people that way by color. You know, all the young people pick up a, a yellow and then the middle, a green and the older red. And so you need to have green, yellow and red at your table. Uh, so that just intentionally mixes the generation. So it helps to give an idea of what you're talking about when you begin to speak about intergenerationality, because people tend to have a very narrow understanding. And the most common misunderstanding is that it's about parents and children. That's all it's about. And for me, it's about six generations, not just two. And I really appreciate that distinction. It's it's not just about parents and kids. It's about all of the generations coming together. Um, you touched on this, you started to, started to touch on this briefly, but I want to ask you the question, why is intergenerationality so important to a person's faith formation? You know, you talked about the 20% that's still here who, who thrived in more siloed approach to ministry, but there were some that that didn't capture their um, their spiritual connection to God. And so why is intergenerationality so important? Well, we tend to become what we've seen. We, um, we lean into an idea of the future by what we've experienced. And in our churches, generally in the West, in the Protestant world, we've tended to view our relationship with God as a private and personal thing. And we've reinforced that. And having siloed ministries has reinforced that as well. We've not done a good job of saying, what does my life in Christ look like when I'm 16, when I'm 29, when I'm 42, when I face divorce, when I face my death? Um, we've thought, oh, well, the old people will deal with that. When I get old, I'll deal with it. We've not been involved enough in each other's lives to begin to say, how do I grow toward that? What does it look like to grow toward maturity in Christ? A sad little thing in my life is that I knew my one of my grandmothers really well. And she, as I grew to know her as an adult, even, I just thought of her as such an amazing spiritual woman. And I stayed with her for two summers when I was five and when I was six. And even then I knew she was. I didn't even have words for it, but I knew it. But I remember as a teenager thinking, when I'm 50, because she was a very young grandmother, when I'm 50, I'll be this amazing Christian spiritual woman, you know. But I didn't know exactly how she got there. I just assumed when you get older, you're, you're there. Well, when I was 50, I wasn't there. And I began more intentionally saying, one must grow toward that. What does that look like? I at least had an idea of what that might look like. But I needed to spend time with people who were older. I had done that some, but not enough. That process, we need to join in with people who are more mature than we are, who are further on the journey. Uh, my spiritual director um, is younger than I am. We've been in this relationship for 35 years. Um, we didn't call her a spiritual director. We didn't know that term that she was before she knew it. Uh, and as we grew in our understanding and our knowledge, we first came realized she was out. We are anamkaras for each other, you know, that spiritual friendship. But as I began to look at becoming a spiritual director, I thought that's that's who Melanie is. But she's younger than I. She just simply had grown in a different way than I had. So I needed it's not necessarily people who are older. That's my point here. It's just people who are further on the spiritual journey. And if we don't spend time with them, we're not going to really know what that looks like or how to become that. 
Um, you said, what is important about being the, with all the generations? Since we tended to look at spiritual formation as a private individual, God and me kind of thing, we fail to notice that in scripture, it is almost always communal. And when Paul says, um, my dear children, for whom I am in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, that gives such a strong sense that we as individuals and as a group inform, form, help transform, help conform others to the image of Christ. It's a communal thing. I think it's intergenerational, but it's communal. And of course, intergenerational doesn't necessarily mean that you have to be with someone 40 years older. It can be just someone just a little bit ahead of you. And again, not necessarily older, uh, younger, but 12-year-olds learn wonderfully from 15-year-olds. It's not that you all have to go sit around the 80-year-olds, although that's good as well. Uh, so being with people at different stages of their journey can help open up what it looks like and to, to be a Christ follower fully and then how to get there. I think God meant for the generations to be together, not just simply because uh, we would survive better. You know, it's a survival issue or it was in the past, long in the long past, it still is. But I think uh, he knows that we learn better that way. It's really hard for 14-year-olds to grow each other up. You know, it kind of becomes a Lord of the Flies thing if you're not careful. Um, so having a youth group is not bad. There are a lot of great things about a youth group. But having different generations there keep the 14-year-olds from being their, each other's uh, main mentors. Uh, we need those, even three or four years older can be helpful. That's why I like when the middle school and the high school gets together, because you already are cross-generational at that point. And the last thing I'll say is once you're a parent, you know, you understand your job is being to help grow your children up, but you recognize before long that they are growing you up. We grow each other up. And I think that happens in cross-generational communities. When you're with people in other stages, other ages, we're growing each other up. And I think God knew that. And that's why I think we need to be with all the generations uh, for our faith purposes, for many other reasons, but also to mature in the faith. Yeah, there's just such a richness about this intentional coming together of all the generations that um, is incredibly impactful from a spiritual formation perspective uh, and many others. I don't want to, you know, don't want to say just that reason, but for many others. Um, when we think about ministry across generations in churches, uh, what are some ways we get it right? And what are some ways that maybe need further attention or growth? We've done some things very well. Uh, and sometimes people read, especially our first book, and they would say, oh, we screwed up. It's terrible. We didn't do anything right. And I don't feel that way at all. And so we've corrected some of that in, in our newer edition. Um, I grew up with all the generations worshiping together. And I would say that as a child, I was very bored. Now, by the time from the time I was 10 or so, I would start taking notes and try to remember what I was hearing. Uh, and I certainly absorbed all the songs and they're with me to this day, all of them, all of the verses, even verse three that we sometimes left out of some of the songs. But I can sing for an hour verses and verses and verses of many, many, many songs. I love some contemporary music as well. It's not as embedded in me yet. Maybe if we would sing them uh, for more than one or two years and then we drop it off and pick up the new one, you know, and so it doesn't have long enough to stay with me. Uh, but I 
So I think worshiping together was was rich and good, but it could have been more intentionally intergenerational. It was for the adults. It definitely was for the adults. And the, the children were there to absorb whatever they could. And by the way, children absorb far more than we know, as you know. They may appear to be drawing or playing a game, and they'll look up all of a sudden and go, oh, we had that, that story in Sunday school. And you didn't know they were paying any attention at all. So they're hearing things and they're putting it together. Um, sometimes strangely, you know, uh, but they're starting to put things, making their own theology as they hear. Um, so I, I would keep children, even if we kept it really focused on the adults, but there's a way to involve children and teens and all the generations. There are several ways to do that more intentionally and with more mutuality and more reciprocity. And those are two key words that we talk about in our newer version, our newer edition, this sense that what other, all the generations bring to the table is of equal weight and value. Uh, in churches that are basically run by boomers, boomers are on the committees, boomers are up front, boomers are leading. I'm a boomer, so I can say this. Boomers are leading. They're saying most of the prayers. They're uh, leading devotional thoughts. They're making announcements. I've been in some churches that were started by 20-somethings or early 30-somethings. And in those churches, 20 and 30-somethings are leading. They're on the praise team. They're doing the preaching. They're saying the prayers. They're making the announcements. And the older people sit somewhere else and the younger ones are off somewhere doing, you know, in children's church. Uh, and the teens are having their own um, gathering. So it's not just generational. I mean, whoever is kind of feeling ownership of the church kind of runs everything. We can do a better job of saying, if you're here, look up, you will see people like you. We've been very careful as our churches have integrated a little better, more diverse, and we make sure that all the different groups of the church. If you have uh, people from the Hmong group, you will make sure every week or every other week that you have somebody saying a prayer, leading, doing something. You want everyone to know we include everybody here. We've not done a good job with the generations. I've seen it done better more recently, uh, but there are many things that children and youth can do. They can be on the committees. Uh, they can help plan. Right now, I'm on a, a committee for reworking our small groups, and we have a young single woman. She's maybe 24, um, and she says, you know, I do feel a little awkward being the only single person in the room and certainly the youngest person in the room, but I'm really glad to be part of this. I'm glad to be invited, and every week, she's a quiet kind of person. Every week that we meet, we say, would you like to add anything, Audrey? And she always has very insightful things to add, and she's also able to say, if you look at what you're planning have you made a space for the singles of the church to be intentionally part? So she brings up things we hadn't thought of. Um, let's see, uh, what have we done well? Um, we have at least worshiped together in some seasons of our history. Um, some are bringing the children back. Some are saying they don't want to do that yet. Some are saying the children don't want to come back. We've done fellowships well. We gather together with everybody. We've done it very well. Um, we've done Christmas caroling intergenerationally. We've had men and boys retreats together, not saying it's going to be the men for the boys. It's them, all of them together doing whatever they're doing together. We've had women and girls retreats, everybody doing everything together, not the women doing it for the girls, but all of us together. Uh, we've had wonderful cross-generational service projects, missions, trips. Some of them have been what I would call truly intergenerational. Some of them are 
uh, sometimes the adults will take the teens on a trip and then they'll hang around and like pack lunches or stuff. They don't do what the youth are doing. They just supervise and oversee and make sure there are adults around. But when you do a mission trip where everybody does whatever they go to do, that's truly intergenerational. So we've done some things partially. Uh, how can we do it better? I've just mentioned a couple of things. I would say, how can we do it better? Um, I think talking about what we're doing, articulating. We're really glad to have all of you here. Our, our youngest girl here is 10 and our oldest is Mrs. Henshaw. And she hasn't been telling us her age, but we know she's older than the rest of us. We're glad she's among us. And we will be, and everything that we do, we'll be doing it together. And we're so glad every one of you are here because we think each generation has something to offer the other. Um, so talk about it. Don't just show up and say, oh, we're all here together. Um, I, I love when you finish an event that you have really intentionally included all the generations and talked about it along the way to say, how would this event have been different had we only had the young moms here or only had the retired people here or only had the emerging adults here. One of the sweetest things I do is um, for my, one of my classes, when I teach this course on intergenerational ministry, the last thing we do in the semester before the final time where everything's crunch is I have all my students over. So there are all these 18, well, they're usually 20, 21, 22 year olds. Then I have a family down the street. They've got four girls. When I first started doing this, they were six, eight, 10, 12. And then the last one I did, they were 12, 14, 16, 18. So one's graduating. And then their parents come who are in their, they were in their thirties now and they're in the forties and their grandparents come. So we typically have all the generations except, well, we don't have any babies, uh, but we, have dinner together, and then we make donuts. And since the four girls who come come every year, they show the college students how to make donuts. And at the end of the night, I always say, "Why? how would this have been different if we had um, had only had the, the college students here or one generation here? And or and the part of that question is, you know, how has it been for you to have all the generations here? And the oldest couple that comes, the grandparents, for the last two years have said something like, it encourages so much to hear our 20-somethings talk about their faith. It encourages for the sake of the church. So they're really encouraged. And they, they always say, thank you for including us. The girls always say something like, I got to teach a college student how to cook donuts or they sometimes bring a new game. We play a game while other people, we only have four people in doing donuts at a time. So the other 12 or 15 are playing a game. And after the first three years, we played the same game every year. They started bringing whatever game they wanted to share. And so they'll say, we got to teach the college students how to play whatever the game was. Um, and then the college students say things like, it's just really good to be with families. I miss children. Or, and this is my favorite, when we go to events that we're included in, it's usually about us. So everything that happens is about all the college students. But when we come here, we find out it's not all about us. We get to serve other people. We get to enter their lives. Oh my, isn't that just rich and wonderful? So if we're intentional and just add that question at the end, how would this event have been different if just the teens were here, whatever. And then you get to talk about why that's important. We failed to, in general, say, why are we doing what we're doing? So in some way, address what we're doing and why we're doing it. I would include, uh, what can we do better? I would include 
having children, teens, emerging adults, and the oldest people on planning committees. We tend not to include them. So be intentional about it. Sometimes children don't belong on some committees, you know, but most committees, they can have a voice. And you might, children feel a little really awkward being the only 11-year-old in there. So you might want to invite two. Um, we found this at when we do intergenerational small groups intentionally for D-men projects, doctor of ministry projects, that you're trying to get your little group together. And so you invite an 11-year-old and a 15-year-old and a 12, and then that 11-year-old sits there terribly intimidated, no matter how wonderfully welcoming you are. And of course, halfway through, they realize, oh, my voice matters. But those first few weeks, they just feel very awkward. So now when I advise doctoral projects, I say, if you're going to be including children, include at least two. Um, and sometimes it's hard to get kids uh, to to join up, but I just, I think it helps the kids. Um, when we do intergenerational things, talk about the word reciprocity and talk about how what each person brings is of equal weight and value. And not just talk about it, but demonstrate it. Um, one of the things that's a little bit annoying to me, and since you've been a children's minister, you know, People want to see the children go up and do something cute. And so we invite them up and they do some little song with, you know, cute little motions and they're cute and they go away. I would like to see children as something beyond cute. Um, I would just, and we, we lend, you know, when we do that, we're saying, aren't they cute? And that's what people say. But if instead, when they say their memory verses, sometimes we'll go up and say, we're going to all cite our memory verse. And we do it and we go, oh, isn't that cute? Instead have it prepared, but have two or three prepared to say, when I first learned this verse, I didn't know what it meant. But last week when I was really sad about something, I remembered this verse that says, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And say, I was sad because I hadn't I didn't make the team that I wanted to make, but I now have hope because I know God is with me. Something that says an eight-year-old can do something beyond memorize words, that they have stories that go with those verses. Uh, it takes more work. It has to be more intentional. But the congregation won't just say, wasn't that cute? They'll say, those verses are going somewhere besides uh, stuck in there for this Sunday, and then they go away by next week, that something important and good is happening. Um, I would also say that we've done, if we attempt to become intergenerational, we need to articulate in teaching settings the biblical, theological, spiritual, empirical, theoretical reasons to do so. Churches, if they think they start to want to go down this path, they think it's going to be fun and easy. Or there'll be some who say, we've been doing it like this forever. It's great. What's wrong with it? And so we need to articulate those foundational supportive reasons. Um when you attempt to move past some, where you've been for a while, people are hesitant and they, they want to know why. And we can do that. We, I can recommend a book that, that will help you uh, get to that place. So as we've moved toward anything, we need to say, why have we been doing what we've been doing? What's been good? What's been not so good? How might we change some of that? And why might we change some of that? So that would be an important thing to do. Well, that actually leads me really well into my next question. Um, 
So I'm I'm really glad you brought up the the ideas of mutuality and reciprocity. Those were those were themes that resonated with me both um, from a scholarly standpoint, but also as a former practitioner, um, as being incredibly important and critical to this conversation as a whole. Yes, and so I appreciate you bringing those up. So I'd like to turn us to the book. Um, so as Holly mentioned, this is the second edition of Intergenerational Christian Formation. Um, and it really, while I loved the first edition, I think this sec- second edition has just been exponentially strengthened. And so I want to just touch on a, a few specific elements. So in Intergenerational Christian Formation, you and your co-authors construct the work in four distinct parts. And you mentioned those four distinct parts a moment ago. Um, generational realities, biblical and theological foundations, sociological, theoretical, and empirical support, and then practices of intergenerational Christian formation. So why are each of those distinct parts essential to the overall conversation? Well, firstly, that that generational realities, we had to address what is. And I would say the most important piece there is why did we do silos? Why did we go that direction? I was there when that began to happen in the 70s and 80s. And I was building from my educational psychology background that says children, especially, need to learn where they are developmentally. And so when I began the children's church at uh, Mentor Lane, (laughs) I felt very good uh, in saying we're doing this for the children so that they can learn in a developmentally appropriate way. I was unaware and didn't have language for it all uh, to of the idea that children are gleaning many spiritual ideas and truths and insights and that affective piece that happens when the worship happens with everybody. Uh, I was concerned that they were not getting the uh, main points of the sermon, I guess is what I would say. And I wanted to make sure they did in a developmentally appropriate way. Uh, so we we go back and say, well, why did we do silos? And I give several reasons. And then I say, so what's wrong with that? You know, since we've kind of, we had good reasons for what we did, what's wrong with that? And we, we begin explaining the rest of the book at that point. So we, uh, in the first section, we say, what are some of the words um, that we kind of do an introduction? What is intergenerationality? Uh, what do we mean by that? What are these key words like mutuality and reciprocity? We do definitions. What do we mean by Christian formation? Um and then we look at, at the reasons why we are where we are. It's not a strong critique. It's just saying, this is why we did it. But we also say things like, this is an aberration. This kind of started in the mid-50s, you know, 1950s. We, those of us who've been sort of born since that time, assumed it was all of reality. So we, we kind of just look at what is. That's the important first piece. Uh, the second section, the biblical and theological support. To me, there's no book here if you don't have the biblical and theological support. And I do make the very sad point that had we, when we begin going down the path towards siloing everyone, had we looked more biblically at what we were doing, we might not have found the support we thought we, we had. I just, I think we were looking at educational psychology. Ted Ward uh, who was a prominent Christian educator at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School in the 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. He's passed away since. But he says, basically, to support our Christian education approaches, we've used developmental psychology. And he didn't say it, but he could have said, rather than theology, <laughs> that's been our supporting discipline. 
So I think we wouldn't have gone so far down this path had we looked a little more closely. Not to say there's not support as well to teach. I mean, older women teach the younger women. I mean, there is support for dividing out for different reasons and special times. The boys, especially, you know, went to synagogue and in the interim period after the temple was gone in, in Jesus's day. So there was some teaching by age and by stage. Uh, so we're not saying it's all wrong. We're just saying, is that the predominant way that we become Christian? Not that we learn facts, but how do we become Christian? So we're trying to establish what we were doing in that first section. And second was then, of course, the biblical support, which I think there is. In the Old Testament, I think it's it's descriptive. How did the people of God become the people of God? I don't necessarily say it's prescriptive. We don't have to go back and live like um, uh, the Israelites lived. But it is descriptive of how God grew a people. This is how he did it. Of course, you say, well, that's just the way everybody did things back then. Maybe, uh, again, for survival purposes. But I would say we're surviving. This is part of our survival as a people of God. We have to have everybody. It's, it's part of our survival. I would say the last 30 to 40 years have been a testimony to how well we are not surviving um, in a setting where we're splitting everybody up. Um, so that's the biblical theological support. Corey, our new author in this book, Corey Seibel, wrote the theo uh, theological chapter. That was one of the only criticisms we got on the earlier book, that it needed a stronger theological chapter. And he wrote this and brought in mutuality, reciprocity, unity and diversity, accommodation, another really important word. Um, up until recently, in the last 50 years, we've expected children and teens to accommodate to the adult world. And we're saying... Accommodation needs to go both ways. For all here, we're going to all have to accommodate. Everybody can't accommodate to me. I need to also accommodate. We've had some older people who really don't want, I mean, people in their 70s and 80s who are saying, I, want, I don't want to sing those, those young camp songs. And they don't want to accommodate uh, for uh, some other generations. And of course, many younger people now are saying, those old dead hymns. And we're going, well, what about the idea that, that that's the heart music for a couple of generations in your church? Can we accommodate for them? They're accommodating for you by singing some of the songs that you know that they don't know that they're learning. So learning to, I love that. That was a wonderful theological point that he made, that Jesus accommodated us by coming as human. I love that. Um, that's the second one. The third, uh, these these are really important chapters to me, because my question when I went to do my doctoral work was, why? And I found some biblical and theological support, but I also wanted to know, was there other kinds of, were there other kinds of support? I found a bunch in, soci in the sociological world. Uh, my favorite was the theory. Uh, I couldn't find a theory that went with this until I came across Vygotsky's work, the idea that we need to be with people a little further ahead of us on the journey to become we want to become like midwives. You just don't go read a book about midwifing and you don't just sit at the feet of the expert and like, oh, taking good notes. What are the three points? And you go, now I'm a midwife. You need to be midwifing with more experienced midwives. So um, I loved learning that. And it, it answered my question, at least initially. There's a theory that goes with this. Uh, then, then my favorite, you know, it's, it's a new, it's a new chapter in this book. I think it's chapter nine. It is the empirical chapter. When we wrote our first book, yes, chapter nine, when we wrote our first book, there was so little empirical support, very 
very little empirical support. And I found, oh, a few doctoral dissertations and some DMAN projects. I found 50 for this one. For the first book, we looked from 1984 when the first dissertation we found was um, published. And so 1984, there was one in 1990, one in 1996, mine in 2002, and then Christine's in 2006. I found 50 from 2010 to 2020, 50. So it shows how the field has grown and how many doctoral students are saying, we need to know more about this. Loved gathering that data, finding what they uh, saw in their research and sharing all that. So that's one of my favorite chapters, the empirical support. Um, and then the fourth section of the book, which is everybody else's favorite part of the book, is what does this look like? When people are becoming interested in intergenerationality, their first question is, how do we do it? And no matter where I go, wherever I speak, whatever I do, I say, for me to get to the how, we're going to do the why first. I insist on never just teaching the how. The why has to be there. If you just teach the how and they try a couple of things and it doesn't work in their setting, they'll say, oh, well, that won't work for us. But if you're committed, if you know the why, if you see how important this is to growth as a body of Christ, then you're committed. You say, well, that didn't work. Let's try this. Uh, so it's the how. But the how chapters are fun and interesting and easy reads. And you will find something that you can start with in your congregation, even if it's just one intergenerational small group. Um, many people say, oh, what, one, of the, one of the reviewers said, uh, the last section of the book is worth the price of the book. And I thought, oh, that annoyed me. But <laughs> what he meant was it's good stuff, you know. But I was like, no, 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 you have to have the whole book. Uh, but he was just saying it, it makes it real. It looks like something because people say, oh, yeah, we're intergenerational. We have like the kids, they stay for the songs. And so we're intergenerational and it's so much deeper and richer. So this shows and demonstrates has good, good stories. So we love chapter uh, section four as well. It's wonderful to catch a glimpse to envision what it might look like. Yes, and I agree. Um, part four, while I, I wholeheartedly um, uh, affirm the necessity of the why and really understanding it, because you're right, it does move you to a place of commitment. Um, it's not just a fad that you're trying. It's here is the reason why this is so important in our churches. Um, but I agree, part four, from a practitioner standpoint, is incredibly helpful and just really a tremendous resource. Um, I'm going to back us up, though, to chapter two. And you touched on this a little bit. In chapter two, um, intergenerate, uh, um, the book traces how, through the best of intentions, churches have ended up operating primarily out of age and stage approach to ministry. As a result, there really can be a tension felt between this idea of age and stage and intergenerational ministry. So how do we navigate that tension? We were criticized for that in our first book. We did some of the book reviews said they're so committed to bringing the generations together that they um, just throw out all age and stage ministry. Well, actually, we didn't. And I found nine places in the first book that we said, you know, it's both and. I mean, use that exact words. But I, I was so frustrated with that criticism that I went back and checked. It's there. It's just not as obvious. And so in this book, we made it explicitly clear that it's a both and proposition, not either or. Because children's ministers and youth ministers sometimes feel threatened as though we're saying, you know, throw out Sunday school, throw out anything you do with just the youth. It's all of us all together, 
all the time or nothing. And I, we're just not there. That's not what we're saying. I'm sure most everyone would agree that the pendulum just has gone way over to the age and stage approach. We are no, not advocating that we just throw all that out and swing the pendulum far back to the other side. We're looking for a balance. And every church will need to kind of find what that looks like for them. I would say it's the rare church that can lead well enough and draw people in and win people to a fully intergenerational approach, even with a year or two preparation. I would view it as something that you begin to implement here and there now and then in small ways and, you know, do something you're already doing well and make it more intentionally intergenerational. Like your potlucks, people still sit, the kids together, the youth together, the older people together, the the boomers together and all that. There are ways to make that a little more intentionally intergenerational, you know, like the colors I mentioned and put some questions in the middle, uh, three questions that pretty much anyone can answer so we get to know each other. Um, And that's not paradigm changing. It just is a nudge. So there are some less threatening ways to begin. Um, But I don't even think the end goal is to become intentionally intergenerational in all things at all times. That's not actually, I don't think we ever say that in the book. Maybe that is what people come up with. That's what they want for us. No, just being the body of Christ more intentionally with all the generations. Oh, another piece that's very important. We say it a couple of times. To be intergenerational doesn't mean all six generations, or as they're saying now, we do have actually seven generations. We do have some of our 90s living and joining with us, um, and our alphas are there, and you hear them. Uh, So seven generations, you don't have to have all seven together to call it intergenerational. When the youth group has something they want to do together, invite the emerging adults or invite Anyone who's retired who wants to join them. Now, I wouldn't recommend that for your trampoline night, but, you know, pick something everybody can do and say, we just want to explicitly invite anyone in their 60s or anyone who is a grandparent, but your grandparents, but your grandchildren may not live here, or even if they do, um, come and join us. If you're missing your teen grandkids, come and join us. Uh, So that's just two generations, but that's okay. That's still intergenerational. That relieves the pressure to say, what are we going to do with the babies? Um, so I think that's important. But it's the both and either or that we're looking for. Does that respond to your question? It does, yes. And 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 um, I think it's important. And, and you use the word balance. And I think that is such a key um, component that y'all really do a good job of articulating in the second edition of this what are the benefits of both and where are where context matters? Where can we dive more fully into an intentional intergenerational opportunity? And where maybe are those times and spaces where we need to attend more carefully to age and stage because of complexities of the context? So I think you'll do an, an amazing job of, of talking about that. So the first edition of this book came out more than 10 years ago. And in my opinion, was already a really impactful book. With this new edition though, you have added chapters and expanded or revised existing chapter chapters. With these changes in mind, what are some elements of this new edition that you believe are especially meaningful for the person serving in ministry? 
so far, the feedback we've gotten for the people who've already read the book, and that's not very many because it's only been out, you know, a few weeks, but I did talk to someone just this week who got an early, um, he was one of the influencers that we sent a book to. And he was saying that the chapter on intergenerational spiritual disciplines, this spiritual disciplines have often, at least in my experience, been experienced individually. You might even be in a group, but you're just doing it yourself. Um, as we talk about bringing the generations together, the big gap has been, how do we do anything in scripture together? This is a way to do it, do an uh, intergenerational lectio and have a child and an adult share their word or their phrase and why. Fabulous, powerful. Um, I'll, I'll share a couple of quotes with you in a minute. So that chapter probably will be the easiest for people to do in almost any intergenerational setting. Um, there are others like intergenerational prayer. Um, dwelling in the word can be done intergenerationally. Um, imagining a passage, though the, the Ignatian imaginative prayer piece, we just, you know, I call it imagining a passage because it, it's more intuitive for me. That can be done in almost any setting. That Doing that by itself, again, in sharing, divide up into pairs and say, who were you in the story? What did Jesus say to you? What did you say to Jesus? I've experienced this and I've had two of my doctoral advisees do their demon project in this kind of setting. And amazing quotes come from that. I want to share one or two and then I'll come back to the rest of your question. This is from a, a young woman who did her demon with... Um, and in an intergenerational small group, the youngest was six. The oldest was 83, I believe. Uh, one of the main concerns of those who might wish to implement spiritual disciplines with children is whether children themselves are capable of entering into the practices and being spiritually changed. Um, Mrs. Um, McCormick is her name, her last name. She offers several examples from her post-project questionnaires, questionnaires, focus groups, and exit interviews that illustrate that children in her study were indeed formed spiritually by the disciplines they practiced. For example, an 11-year-old boy said he had learned that the Bible isn't just something you study in school. It's something which can be alive every day when I read it. Oh, wow. And a six-year-old boy said that everything they did reminded him that we are all God's children and created in our own special way. So she talks about the children being able to, but then she also talks about, so were the adults just there for the kids? Is that all that was going on? You know, sometimes people interpret intergenerationality as, okay, we'll join up for the sake of the kids. Can adults actually be blessed by this? Uh, so she shares multiple ways that uh, children saw themselves differently, but also the adults. The adult participants shared in the post-project debriefings how surprised they were at the bonding, the mutuality, and the spiritual reciprocity they experienced with their much younger partners. A 50-something boomer remembered her reaction the very first week when she was partnered with an 11-year-old boy, and they pondered together God's creation of humankind in God's image. In the deep briefing, this participant reported that she realized in that moment that I had expected so little from children. And then when her preteen partner responded, she realized that kids have something to teach me. So quotes like this are all the way through that help the adults see that they're receiving from the children. They're not just there for the children to facilitate, which is a worthy enough reason. But if we want to be truly intergenerational, we're doing it for all of us, not just for the sake of the children. Um, let's see. Your question was, what would help um, 
what would ministers glean from this book? So some ways to do intergenerational things, intergenerational spiritual disciplines. Um, they would learn about how to cast a vision. They would learn how to build uh, toward becoming more intentionally intergenerational. The chapter on the empirical chapter that says, what did these D-men students and other doctoral students find? They said, you cannot be the lone advocate. You must build a team that's on board with you. This is huge adaptive change. It's not just changing the time for worship, which is hard enough, you know, but this is adaptive change takes place over a long time. They would learn those kinds of things to build a team, to bring your staff on board. Even if you're the senior pastor, the senior minister, the preaching minister, it takes more than you. So that's one of the things that ministry would learn. You need your staff on board, all of them, so that they're advocating, not, not just saying, oh, yeah, that's Jim's thing. He, he's doing that over there but we're all in on this. What else would they learn? Everybody will not necessarily buy in. You may have some losses. Some people are very convinced that the way to go is age and stage ministry, but you will also gain people who say, this is what I've been looking for all of my life. Uh, but you need to know there'll be some you cannot win. Uh, you will uh, learn how to cast a vision. You'll learn how to offer the support that you need the empirical support, depending on your people. If they want to hear stories, if they want to um, hear the empirical work, or if they want to hear the um, sociological support, certainly the biblical and theological, you will you will receive that. This will preach, you know, all these things will preach or they will teach. I actually recommend more of a teaching setting than preaching, but about a third of the DMIN projects, they, they actually preached it um, so that everybody heard it. And there's an advantage to that as well. What else will... Bless them as they read this. Um, yeah, find the other people who are early advocates. And then it takes patience. And along the way, share your stories. When you start small and something wonderful happens, share the story uh, with everyone else. There's one more little story. This, um, this person did dwelling in the word in, in two small groups. And at the end, he asked, how would it be different if everybody in this church got to experience what you did? And this is what he said. This is a 71-year-old male. It would be a church that was stronger, more devoted, and a caring church. As we were discussing this, I got to thinking about Paul's statement about neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. We would need to add young or old because this experience has enhanced our experience with God, all this experience that we've had together, all of us. So I just love that when they're able to articulate why this is different, how this has helped us become a caring body of Christ. Those are the things that I think they'll get from this book. And I was reading from the book. These are quotes in here that will, will be a blessing from groups and churches who've gone down this journey before them. So they'll be encouraged uh, by the stories of those who've gone before and say, if they can do it, we can do it too. What a beautiful note to end on. Holly, thank you so much for walking us through this tremendously important conversation for both sharing your heart for intergenerationality, but also um, your work that you and Christine and Corey have done. Um, and to our listeners, thank you so much for being here with us today. Don't forget, you can find all of our podcast episodes at cyberinstitute.podbean.com or at your podcast platform of choice. Thank you for listening in and have a great day. Thanks for listening today to Live from the Cybert Institute. 
We would love to connect with you on our social media channels, and you can always find all of our various resources at our website, cyberinstitute.org. If you haven't done so yet, make sure to subscribe and follow this podcast on your platform of choice, then share it with your friends. Until next time, may God bless you in all that you do.